the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. You ever wonder where the Bible came from, how it was developed, and how it was assembled, coalesced? Well, we'll spend some time today and tomorrow taking a look at an answer to that question. We invite you to join us for Abounding Grace. From Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose and online at reformedheritage.org, this is Abounding Grace. Welcome to our program. Well, today, as we take a break from Romans, we find ourselves looking at the history of the English Bible. You ever wonder where it came about, how it came about, how it was assembled and put together? Well, a guy by the name of William Tyndale has something to do with it, and we'll work our way towards all of that. But first... Let's spend some time in Isaiah 46, verses 8 through 11, the history of the English Bible. Here's Pastor Gary Wagner, and today's Abounding Grace. Today I have decided to return to the history of the church in the British Isles. If you remember, back in October, we got audaciously from the 1st century to the 15th century, and today we're going to go back to that same subject. But before we do, I want to read to you some scripture. I'm going to read these passages from the old Geneva Bible, because today and sometime again in the future, I'll be talking about this Bible, which is an English version of scripture that predates the King James Version. The King James Version was translated and published in 1611, The Geneva Bible was written and published in 1560. It was translated into the English by members of John Knox's congregation in Geneva, Switzerland, while he was studying under John Calvin. So the best of the Reformed world contributed to this translation of the Bible. One of the strengths of it is that it has a running commentary in it, much like today's new Geneva Study Bible or the Reformation Study Bible. Each page has Calvinistic comments that are socially and politically explosive for an age of tyrants. In fact, the reason King James of England had the King James Version published, the great pervert and tyrant that he was, was to wean England from the footnotes of the Geneva Bible. But as we will see on another occasion, it took him quite some time to get that done. When the pilgrims and the Puritans came to America and built this nation upon the Bible, it was not the King James Version they brought over. It was the Geneva Bible. One of the things I think will impress you as I read from the Geneva Bible is that it had not, if I had not told you how old it is, you would have thought it is a relatively modern translation. 
Our first text is Isaiah. It's from Isaiah. Chapter 48, verses 8 through 11. And I've got this written down. I didn't bring my Geneva Bible because it's actually a table Bible, and it's about this thick and about this big. So I I copied the verses down for you. But listen carefully uh, to this. Isaiah 46, verses 8 and 11. And you might read along in your own Bibles, depending on what version you have, to see if there's any differences at all or if they're similar or not. Remember this and be ashamed. Bring it again to mind, O you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is none other God, and there is nothing like me, which declares the last thing from the beginning and from of old, the things that were not done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do whatsoever I will. I call a bird from the east, and the man of my counsel from far, as I have spoken. So I will bring it to pass. I have purposed it, and I will do it. Then 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 24 and 25. Now, if you remember the sermon I gave in October, I gave you a biblical philosophy of history and why Christians should seek to understand history, which I will review in just a couple of minutes. But let's first read, because this will give you a preface to this, from 1 Corinthians 15, 24, and 25. Then shall be the end, when he hath delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he hath put down all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he hath put all his enemies under his feet. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 5 through 11. But when many of them, but with many of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in ye wilderness. Now these things are our examples, to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Neither be ye adulterers, as were some of them, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Neither let us commit fortication, as some of them committed fortication and fell in one day three and twenty thousand. Neither let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted him and were destroyed of serpents. Neither murmur ye, as some of them also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. Now all of these things came unto them for examples and were written to admonish us or instruct us upon whom the end of the world are come. And then the last is from Hebrews 12.1, which should be very familiar to most of you. Wherefore, let us also, seeing that we are compassed with so great a cloud of witness, cast away everything that presseth down And the sin that hangeth so fast on, let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Now, from these four passages of Scripture, we have sufficient reason and basis to say that if a Christian is going to have any success in the Christian life, he has got to know and understand and appreciate and feel a part of and a sense of the flow of history. And the four words we saw in the previous study on this subject were these. Pattern, progress, example or instruction, and encouragement. Because God is sovereign, 
And as foreordained, everything that comes to pass, there is a plan or a pattern to history. And once you understand that, you are able to see a unity to it. You are able to figure out and realize why things happen the way they do. That history is not just a collection of unrelated events. There is a unity. There is a significance, a meaning to it all because of the pattern, the plan that our sovereign God has given it. Secondly, there is progress to it. The kingdom of God continues to advance. Christ is now and has been sitting on the throne, and he will put all things under his feet in due time. So there is progress and development in history. We don't expect things to go downhill. We don't expect things to stagnate. There is an upward, slow progress of history because of the triumph of the kingdom of God. So as you study history, it encourages you to see how God overcomes his enemies and you're able to see your position in history more clearly. You may be in a position where Christians are on the run. But if you look at it in God's overall scheme of things, you see the upward move of history. And then you don't get discouraged quite so easily. The third word is instruction. That God has given us church history with all kinds of examples of how to live the Christian life and how not to live the Christian life. How to face the world and how not to face the world. So that as you study history from a biblical perspective, you learn a great deal about God and about God's hand in history and about how to live the Christian life in history. Then the last word is encouragement. Seeing that we are encompassed by so great a cloud of witnesses, that seeing how God's people lived before us in similar and worse situations and growing from them and being encouraged by them is one of the primary blessings of the knowledge of church history. Last time we looked at the introduction of Christianity into the British Isles back into the first century, and I went all the way to the 14th and 15th centuries. Now I want us to go back into that same period of history and look at something we didn't look at last time, but which is vitally important that we understand and appreciate. In the Reformation of England, during the 16th and 17th centuries, of course, the English Bible played a central role. So what I want to do today, because we certainly didn't learn this in government schools, is to study the history of the Bible translated into English. And I want you to see that we have a long-standing history in this subject. For instance, the first attempt to put the Bible into English, of course, Anglo-Saxon English, was of all things in 670 A.D. So you see the King James is actually a modern translation, so to speak, comparatively. The first attempt to put an, any part of the Bible into English was in 670 A.D. by a Celtic Saxon poet-singer by the name of Cademan. 
Cademan loved to sing, and he played on a handheld harp. He would have the monks translate portions of the Bible out of Latin into English, and then he would put it into poetical paraphrase. So it's really not an actual translation, but a paraphrase. But he would take these English translations, and he'd sing them to the people, which was the first attempt to put any of the Bible into English by any man, and his name was Cademan in 670 A.D. Then the second time we read about trying to put any part of the Bible into English was in 709 A.D. At that time, there was a monk, an abbot, by the name of Aldhelm, who was also a singer and a musician on the harp. And he had an evangelistic heart. And what he would do is dress in the clothing of a minstrel, and he would sit on a bridge that one was one of the leading bridges into the town of Shearborn, where everyone had to come and go to and from the market. And skilled musician that he was, he would sit on the bridge playing all sorts of popular tunes of this day. And then when a crowd would gather around him, he would all of a sudden start singing paraphrases of Scripture in an attempt to preach and witness to them through song. He was also the first translator of the Psalms into English, and he asked another man to translate the Gospels into English. And this was in 709. So 150 Psalms, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, although it was only portions of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The next time is by a man named Venerable Bede, Reverend Bede. He lived between 673 and 735 A.D. You can actually still buy his most famous book titled Ecclesiastical History of the English People, which he wrote around 731. Today it's a paperback published by Penguin Press, and you can still get it. He was the most famous English Christian scholar of the whole era, and he translated the Gospel of John into English. The story of his death and its connection with his translation is a moving one. This was actually written by one of Bede's close friends. Quote, All through the day, before Ascension Day 735, Bede had been dictating his translation of the Gospel of John, for he said, I do not want my boys, the monks, to read a lie or work to no purpose after I'm gone. On the evening of that day, he had one chapter that remained untranslated. The great scholar knew he was very near death. So early on the morning, on Ascension Day, his secretary said, Dear Master, there is one chapter yet to do. Take thy pen and write quickly, said Bede. All through that day, interrupted by saying farewell to the brothers of the monastery, he painfully translated on. Just as night came, his sobbing scribe leaned over and whispered to the dying man, Master, there is one more sentence in the Gospel of John to translate. And Bede said, write quickly. The scribe wrote on, and he said, Dear Master, it is done now. And Bede said, Yes, it is done now. And he closed his eyes, and he died. But there is no trace 
of this translation anywhere today. The next time was King Alfred the Great. He was the only king of England called the Great, and he was well-deserving of the name. He was used of God to spiritually revive the church, to defend the state, to encourage school and education, and to codify the law of England. He was certainly the greatest of English kings. He whipped the Vikings, signed a peace treaty with them, and on the spot led their king, Kufran, to Christ and had had him baptized. He himself would translate the writings of Augustine into English out of Latin. He loved to expound the word of God and discuss theology. One particular book he translated by Augustine was about a half inch thick in Latin. But when it came out in English, by his hand, it was huge. And he never tells you when he stops translating and starts commenting on the book. So it's really a mixture of Augustine and King Alfred. I'm sure you've heard of the common law and how it's been the basis of jurisprudence in the West for over a thousand years. The common law is a consensus historically throughout the West and was written because around the year 900, King Alfred was the first man to codify the laws of the Anglos and the Saxons and to systematize them into a book. And of course, being a Christian who didn't know any better than to be a theonomist, most of the codified laws of the Anglos and the Saxons were taken from Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So there you have King Alfred translating the Ten Commandments into English and translating various parts of the Pentateuch into English and also caused another Psalter to be translated. About 50 years after King Alfred's death, there was another man by the name of Aldred who was the first man that we know of to translate completely all of the four Gospels into English. He took the Latin text and wrote the English between the lines of the Latin text. The Latin text actually belonged to a man who was the Bishop of Lindisfarne, and the text is called Lindisfarne Gospel or the Book of Kells. The artwork in this book is abundantly gorgeous. You can go to Wikipedia and see some of this art, and I would suggest you do so. It's absolutely beautiful. This art and translation go back to about 950 A.D. at least. And Bishop Usher, Usher who put the chronology in the, in, in, into Scripture and whose confession of faith was the model for the Westminster Confession of Faith, owned the original book. Upon his death, his daughter wanted to sell it to a buyer on the continent of Europe. But Oliver Cromwell found out about it, and he had no intention of letting a book that great leaving the British Isles, so he forbade her from selling it, and it remains to this day in the University of Dublin. Then in the year 1000, there was a man named Alfred who translated the Gospels into English without any accompanying Latin text. There are six known copies of this translation still in existence, and the oldest is from the year 1000. 
Alfred later became the Archbishop of Canterbury and also translated into English, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Esther, Job, and part of Kings. There's an interesting comment in his translating notes. He said, in translating these books, I have made use of my translations from older translations. In other words, he was translating based upon what others had translated, and we don't have the slightest idea what they were, because a lot of the older translations were destroyed during the tremendous devastation caused by the Vikings, and then later by the destruction caused by the Normans, which leads us to William the Conqueror and the great Norman conquest of the Anglo-Saxons. Do you remember the battle from your grade school education? Surely you learned about the battle even in government schools. Surely all of you learned this one date and this one great battle sometime in your public synagogues of Satan about how William the Conqueror, the Norman, took over Anglo-Saxon England at the Battle of Hastings in 1066. Right? You all read about that. Oh, really? No one? He crushed the Anglo-Saxons and Britons and Celts. And then he outlawed the Anglo-Saxon English, and he substituted it with Anglo-Norman English, which was greatly influenced by the French. The old Anglo-Saxon English was then not allowed to be spoken in the courts or in the schools. No books were allowed to be published in Anglo-Saxon, and the only place Anglo-Saxon continued to be spoken was in cloistered monasteries and in the homes of peasants. It could not be used in any literature. So all the British Isles had to learn basically a new language. The old language was forbidden, and through that confusion of tongues, there was the prevention of any kind of production of literature, and for the next 150 years, there was no good translation of the Bible produced because there was so much chaos of language. But in 1215, (coughs) there was a man named Orm, O-R-M, and his translation of 20,000 lines of Scripture is still in existence at Oxford University. It is a metrical version of portions of the Gospels and of the book of Acts to be sung in worship services. Orm was an Augustine monk. His translation is not another real translation, but a paraphrase. In his running explanatory notes throughout it, and interestingly, the the vocabulary is Anglo-Saxon, though the syntax and grammar is Norman. He also translated Genesis and Exodus into English. There was no other translation of any book of the Bible after the Norman conquest in 1066 until the middle of the 14th century. None for almost 300 years except one book, the 150 Psalms. And in 1320, there were actually two versions of the Psalms in English that came out. One from southern England by William Shoreham from Kent and one in northern England by Richard Roll of Yorkshire. In the translation by Roll, he has a commentary to help the local preacher understand the book 
And it was so widely used in England that for more than a century, that was the only book that leading Christian scholars studied in the British Isles. These translations of the Psalms by Shorham and Roll were extensively distributed and in full use about the time of the birth of the youth of John Wycliffe. These translations of the Psalter, widely known throughout England, created a thirst for a larger portions of the Word of God, which John Wycliffe was used of God to do. I think you should know for any literature classes that the modern English you know evolved and developed because of these English Psalters. Well, this has been Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner from Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose. As we have closed out our time together today, I would remind you that our desire is to know how this program encourages you in Christ. Now, there are a couple of three ways that you can contact us to provide us with this information. And again, it would really encourage us a great deal if you'd take a moment and let us know how the program is encouraging you in your walk and relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's how to contact us. Phone number is 408 408- Eight six six five six zero seven. That's four zero eight eight six six five six zero seven. Our website, where you can drop us an email and even learn a bit more about us, is reformedheritage.org. And then, of course, you can write to us at PMB. That stands for Post Mailbox Number four zero two fourteen eighty four Pollard Road, Los Gatos, California. The zip code is nine five zero three two. Now, there is another way you can contact us, and this would be the best of all, especially if you're not involved in a church at this time. Plan on visiting. Let us uh, fellowship face-to-face, as it were. We meet at Lone Hill Church, 2 in the afternoon on Sundays at 5055 Lone Hill Road in Los Gatos. Directions can be found at our website, reformedheritage.org, or by calling 408-866-5607. By the way, copies of the broadcast are just $5. Mention today's date when you contact us, and we'll get a CD out to you right away. Thank you for joining us today. Until next time, God bless. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here. Here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never before seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. Salemnow.com.